We are in a short series called My Circle. And to get us to what we're talking about here today, I just want to uh, share a quick story with you. I remember uh, when, when I was six or seven years old, I was going into first grade, and my parents moved us out to San Diego. They were going to grad school out there. We were dirt poor. We lived in this little, like, basement apartment that wasn't really even supposed to be an apartment. And... Uh, kind of like a hot plate thing, you know, with our family of four. But my parents, even though we were dirt poor and they were college students, um, they, they took us and did all sorts of cool things. We, we got to go to SeaWorld all the time, which was awesome, and uh, the San Diego Zoo, and to Balboa Park. Anybody know where Balboa Park is? Right next to the San Diego Zoo. Great park. And I remember this one time, we were just playing. They have a great playground there. You know when you're a kid, you just meet a friend at the park? And like 30 seconds, you meet them, 30 seconds later, you're friends. I was at the beach a while back uh, with our family. And I remember my little girl and my, my son, they met this other little girl. And within like 30 seconds, they're just best buddies, right? And they still talk about, remember our friend we met at, at the beach? And we're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I remember that. So kids are just that way. I think that's an awesome thing about kids is how quick they just meet somebody and they're friends, right? And so I remember being at the park. I was about seven years old, and I met this kid. And I still, to this day, I, I can't remember his name. I can't really even picture what he looks like in my head. But I remember I, in 30 seconds, I made a friend, and we hung out. We played together. But the, the most distinctive thing I remember about that experience was sitting on the curb, on the curbing next to the playground at Balboa Park talking about Jesus. And I don't know how I brought it up. But somehow I shared the gospel and shared my faith with this, this other kid and got to lead him in a prayer to accept Jesus right there at seven years old. And, and now, um, you know, me as a grown-up, looking back at me as a seven-year-old, I'm like, who was that kid? Maybe some of you identify with that. Maybe you look at a time in the past when you were bold and maybe your, your faith just felt like you were on fire for Jesus, you couldn't help but share him. There's a pattern, I think, that's pretty clear in, in life, that as you grow and as you approach teenage years from being a kid, you become acutely concerned about fitting in, right? And you become acutely averse to anything that feels awkward or anything that feels like it might put you in a spotlight as being different. And for so many people, the primary reason why they never share Jesus, maybe this is your story, the primary reason why they never share Jesus with anyone is it just feels awkward. And we are very adverse to feeling awkward, aren't we? It's like, ooh, that's a scary, scary thing, feeling awkward. Now, this series is called My Circle. And here's the heart behind the series. Uh, about a year ago, our church leadership, our staff, we, we came together, and as we're praying through, God, what's our, what strategy would you have us move into? What, what could we inspire our people to do over this next season to reach our community? We began looking around the church, and there's just some amazing families that God has placed and planted in this church who are just so effective at loving the people in their circle, in their, in their lives, um, caring for, praying for them, inviting, sharing. They're filling up rows. And so we looked at some of these families, and, and I think God planted this little phrase in our hearts. So we didn't make it up, I don't think. But 
It's very catchy, and I think it really communicates the heart of what we felt like God was calling our church. If we could get to this in this next season, if we could get every one of us to do this, it would really change our community, and I believe the ripples would go on to change the world. And that phrase is this, my circle, my responsibility. And the purpose of this series and really the purpose behind this, this strategy is this, that you would become intentional about influencing those in your circle towards Jesus. Those in your circle, those that God has placed in your life, whether that's, you know, your friends you hang out at the park with and go watch kids play or your coworkers or your neighbors or your extended family, that you would become intentional, not just accidental, about loving them, about praying for them, about sharing Jesus with them, and about inviting them into the fellowship and the community of believers. That you would become intentional about that, loving, praying, sharing, and inviting. And so last week, we gave you a few just simple steps to begin influencing those in your circle toward Jesus. And the first one was this, to, to love people in your circle, that it's all motivated out of a heart of love, Great commandment, great commission, two things every believer is called to, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself, and the great commission to influence others to become followers of Jesus, to share the good news, to share the gospel with those in our lives. And so we said we want to love people in our circle of influence. It all begins with love. It's all motivated out of love. Be a blessing to people before them, before their families. Love people. And the second thing we gave you to do is to begin to pray for people in your circle. And as we talked to some of these families, um, and, and they shared that the thing that's in common that they said is, hey, it just started. I mean, we prayed for these people. We've been praying for these people for years. I remember I've got an uncle, Uncle Steve, a great guy, lives up in Oregon. He has a business selling tractors, done this for years and years. And when he married my aunt, um, and, and they had their little, my cousin, uh, Dana, Uncle Steve wasn't a, a believer. He was kind of a roughneck guy. And Aunt Carol and her daughter, they started praying for Steve. And he'd never go to church. I mean, he was okay if they did, but he'd never go to church with them. Didn't really want to have anything to do with it. But they just prayed for years and years and years and years. And one day, God got a hold of Uncle Steve. And man, when he did, everything shifted in his life. Um, he would drive all over the country selling tractors, thousands of miles. In the first two years after he accepted Jesus, he listened to the, the Bible on audio 70 times. I mean, he was just lit up for Jesus. If he went through a day without bringing Jesus into one of the interactions or conversations he had with people in his business, he felt like that was a failure. And God just transformed his life. Prayer is powerful. And so we encourage you to begin praying for the people in your life. Gather your family if you have a family together and, and, and just start making it a regular part of daily life, maybe around the dinner table as you begin to pray for those in your life who maybe don't know Jesus yet or maybe are disconnected, maybe haven't been to church in 10 years, right? Begin to pray for people in your life as a family or as a single or maybe with some roommates. And then the second thing, and this is... A, this is a little more awkward. You can do that without feeling too awkward because they don't have to know about it, right? But this one's a little more awkward, but this is one of the biggest keys for beginning to influence people towards Jesus, and that is to pray with people. 
that as you love people, as you pray for them, as you build relationship with them, they're going to share things with you about, you know, things they're going through, man. Uh, um, things are hard at home right now. Uh, things are hard financially. Just not doing so good right now. We're having issues with our kid. There's a health thing. And, and as they share those things with you, you have a strategic opportunity to ask a simple, powerful little question, and that is this. Can I pray for you? So you're going to pray for people, and you're going to pray with people, and you're going to ask, can I pray for you? And this is such a powerful question, because instead of just offering some sort of platitude, you know, like, oh, everything will be okay, or something like that, that really doesn't help, you are actually, you have the opportunity to, through prayer, invite the creator of the universe into the situation that they're facing, and so I want to encourage you just to begin to get over the awkward. And, and when you have the opportunity to just ask, hey, can I, can I just put a hand on your shoulder? Let's, let's pray right now. I'm, I know it feels a little weird, but I believe God is alive and I believe God is active. Let me pray for you. Let me pray for you right here and now. This is one of the best and least awkward ways that you can bring Jesus into the conversation. This is one of the, the easiest ways that you can identify in your friends and your people in your circle, in their lives, who the Jesus people in their lives are. Because you may be the only connection they have to Jesus. You may be the only Jesus person in their life. And so this is a powerful question. And, and the, the fourth thing we said we're going to talk about today is this, to share and invite. To share and invite. And so I want to give you a couple powerful, simple statements today that will help you do that in a way that maybe you haven't been able to do before. And to help us with that, we are going to look at a letter that one of Jesus' first followers wrote, and that's the letter of First Peter. Peter uh, had a brother named Andrew, and Andrew was actually one of the followers of John the Baptist. He had disciples, these guys that hung out or learning from him. And one day, as Andrew is out there with John. Jesus walks by, and John looks over and goes, look, the Lamb of God. And basically, he's identifying Jesus as the Messiah. And so Andrew and his buddy peel off from John, and they start following Jesus. And if you read the story in John, it's, it's kind of funny, I think, because as they're following Jesus, basically, you get the idea that Jesus is just kind of walking, and these guys are just kind of following behind him. They're probably, you know, in their teens, maybe early 20s, but likely these guys are in their teen years, and they're just kind of like, hey, that's Jesus. He might be the son. Let's, let's kind of follow him. And they're awkwardly sort of following behind him, and Jesus turns around and goes, what do you guys want? And then I think, like, teenage guys, they, they come up with some dumb answer, right? They're like, um, where are you staying, rabbi, teacher? They're like, I don't know. Where are you staying? And so Jesus looks at him and says this powerful little phrase, come and see, come and see. And so they go hang out. They spend the afternoon with Jesus, and it's a revolutionary time. It says after this, the very first thing Andrew does is he runs and he finds his brother Peter and says, Peter, we found the Messiah. And so he brings Peter to Jesus, and Jesus looks at Peter and, and, and says, hey, you're going to have a nickname. We're going to call you Rocky. And so sometime later, after this, Philip, one of the other guys who was with Andrew when they first met Jesus, he goes and finds his buddy, Nathaniel. He's like, we found the Messiah. He's from, you know, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel, sarcastic, is like, oh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, it's like Olathe or something, you know? <laughs> can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
And Philip looks at him and says the same thing Jesus said. Come and see. Come and see. And see, one of the most powerful things you can do as you begin to share Jesus with people in your lives and invite them into church and different things like that is just say, hey, come and see. Come and see. You know, here we have a phrase, and it's this. You can belong before you believe. And what that means is this is a, a safe place. If you're here and you're just investigating Jesus and church and the Bible, you are welcome here. You can belong here. This is a safe place for you to come and explore your questions and explore your doubts. You can belong before you believe. And so come and see one of the most effective things you can do as you begin to share Jesus with your friends. If you are a follower of Jesus, hey, come on. I just want to invite you. I just want to invite you. Come and see. Now, sometime later, Peter is on the beach after a long night of fishing because that's when they fished. They're on the Sea of Galilee. And he's mending his nets. It's the morning. And Jesus is over there teaching. And he's teaching. This crowd gathers around Jesus. And Peter's over here. He's just mending his nets. He's like picking out the beer cans out of the nets, you know. And you guys are a hard crowd. You must not have got an hour less sleep. He's like just cleaning his nets and listening to Jesus preach over here. And at the end of Jesus' message, Jesus walks over to Peter and goes, hey, Pete, why don't you take me fishing? And at this point, Peter's tired. He's been up all night. He's just got the net cleaned. He's ready to go home, take a nap. And he looks at Jesus. He's like, really? He's like, I know you're a brilliant rabbi and teacher, but I'm a pretty good fisherman. And he says, I I was fishing all night last night. We didn't catch anything. But because it's you, Jesus, I'll take you fishing. And so they go out, and they throw the nets out. And they get such a huge catch that it blows everybody's mind. And Peter and, and James and John, these other brothers, as they haul in this ginormous catch of fish, Peter falls down in front of Jesus because he realizes He is in the presence of a holy person, of a holy one, and he is an unholy person. And at that point, he falls down and he says, away from me, Lord, I'm a sinner. He has this recognition, right? But Jesus looks at him and goes, yeah, Peter, but I want to give you an invitation. Why don't you you come fish for men? And he invites Peter to follow him, and it completely changes the course of Peter's life. Years later, after Jesus' resurrection, Peter will become one of the greatest missionary preachers of all time. And towards the end of his life, he'll write a little letter to some of the believers that that he's probably led to Jesus and he's discipled along the way. It's known in the Bible as 1 Peter. And, And he actually shares a nugget of truth when it comes to sharing our faith that is so powerful. And I'm going to pick it up in in verse 13 of 1 Peter 3. And it says this, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. And so in getting to the idea of living your life for Jesus and sharing your faith, he begins by introducing the idea that we as followers of him may actually suffer something. It may cost us something to follow Jesus and and to live the way that Jesus asks us to live and commands us to live in this world. See, Peter is writing this in a Roman culture that at this time is deeply suspicious of Christians. 
Christians denied the superstitions and the idol gods of you know, Roman culture that everyone else believed in and everyone else worshipped. And so actually, they called Christians atheists. And there were all these crazy rumors going around, like they ate babies and um, crazy stuff like that. So there's all these rumors. They were very suspicious of followers of Jesus in the first century. In fact, during this time, worship of the emperor became very popular. It was actually a form of swearing allegiance to Rome. And so the statement, when you see the statement all throughout the New Testament that believers would say, Jesus is Lord, that was a powerful statement. That was a revolutionary statement. Because what you were saying is Jesus is the true Lord, Caesar is not. It was subversive. People were very suspicious of Christians, and a lot of persecution began to break out. In fact, a short time after Peter writes this under Nero, uh, Nero would pin a, the fire, the, the big fire in Rome on Christians, and an intense persecution of Christians would break out. And many believers, early believers of Jesus, would give their lives for their allegiance to Jesus. There's an interesting series of letters, uh, a couple of letters we have recorded in history from a guy named Pliny the Younger. He was a governor of Pontus and Bithynia. And he wrote this in about the year 112 BC, which would have been a few decades after Peter wrote this little letter. And he writes to the emperor Trajan because they have a problem. That's that this Christian superstition, they said, was spreading all over. And it was having these ill effects all over. People were abandoning the Roman temples, not worshiping the Roman gods, not swearing allegiance, and worshiping Caesar. And here's what Pliny the Younger wrote. He was actually commissioned to investigate the Christians and kind of try to figure out what was going on in this whole movement. And he writes this to the emperor Trajan. It is my practice, my lord, to refer to you all matters concerning which I am in doubt. For who can better give guidance to my hesitation or inform my ignorance. I have never participated in trials of Christians. I therefore do not know what offenses it is the practice to punish or investigate and to what extent. And then he goes on to describe how he currently was carrying out these trials against those who were accused of being Christians in this day. He says, I have observed the following procedure. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians those who confessed, I interrogated a second and third time, gave them a couple chances to back out, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. He goes on a little later, says this, those who denied that they were or had been Christians when they invoked the gods in words dictated by me, offered prayer with incense and wine to your image, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose together with statues of the gods, and moreover, cursed Christ, none of which those who are really Christians, it is said, can be forced to do. These, I thought, should be discharged. We let them go. The others, we executed them. And then he goes on, and listen to this. This is fascinating. He goes on to describe the self-professed practices of the early Christians. And here's what he says about this. The sum and substance of their fault or error has been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day, which was Sunday, the first day of the week, before dawn, and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God, and to bind themselves by oath. Now listen, what were they binding themselves by an oath to? 
not to some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. In other words, they're actually kind of really good people. They're, they're kind of model citizens. It's kind of confusing for me, this whole thing. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again. So they'd go off to work, and then they'd come assemble again to partake of food. But listen, but ordinary and innocent food. In other words, they're not actually cannibals. They don't eat babies. You know where that rumor got started? Communion, right? Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. And so because of, you know, the Christians would, you know, commemorate by drinking, eating bread and drinking wine or juice, they would commemorate Jesus' death and resurrection, this, this crazy rumor got started. And Pliny's going, I just don't know what to do with this. I mean, they're really kind of model citizens, emperor. He goes on this way. He says, I therefore postponed the investigation and hastened to consult you. For the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. For many persons, listen to this, many persons of every age, every rank, and also both sexes are and will be endangered. For the contagion of this superstition, the Christian faith, has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. He's like, there's so many of them. I had to pause and write and try to see what you wanted us to do with these because they're everywhere. This is, this is not very long after Peter wrote his, this letter. And already the faith had spread under great persecution. This is the third period of intense persecution against Christians already, just in the decades following Jesus' resurrection. This article uh, that I read says this. These letters were written in about 112 A.D., when pagan Rome was still struggling with how to handle this popular Christian movement. But in the ensuing two centuries, when a governor or judge sat in judgment on Christians, he asked, are you a Christian? If the per person said, Christianus sum, I am a Christian, he or she was set aside for capital punishment. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine living your life with, for Jesus with that kind of stakes on the line? It's hard for us to imagine today in our culture. But still, even today, in various parts of the world, people are literally physically dying and giving their lives. Places like China and other places, they're dying and giving their lives for their faith, for the fact that they will not abandon their faith in Jesus. It's still happening all over this world. It's hard for us to imagine, but let me just say, as I believe as our culture drifts more and more away from Jesus, it won't always be easy to be a Christian. It won't always be comfortable to be a Christian. And that's why some of these scriptures, like Peter writes, are so important for us to read and for us to grasp and for us to wrap our minds around when he says, hey, it, it, suffering might come. It, suffering will come, right? That's part of life. But if it comes, um, do not fear. Do not be threatened. And then he goes on in verse 15 to share this incredible commission for us as followers of Jesus. He says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. 
Dedicate him as Lord. Make sure you know that he is Lord. He is Lord of all. He is Lord of your life. He's Lord of everything. He's Lord. Always be prepared. Be ready. Be ready. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be ready, he said. Always be prepared. Be ready to give an answer. And this is the little Greek word apologia. We get the word apologetics from it, which we normally think about like um, answers to hard questions about the faith. And he says, always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason, the origin. This little Greek word logos. The origin or the explanation for the hope. And the hope means the confident expectation. And Peter says, here's what I want you to know. I want you always to be ready, always to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. Now, if you grew up in church and you've heard this voice, heard this verse, rather, I think that often we we tend to hear this in the context of always be ready to defend your Christian worldview, your faith. Always be ready to defend your church or the history and the reliability of the Bible and all these kind of things. Be ready. Be ready. And let me just say, it's great to learn about all those things. And we talk about things like that on a, on a regular basis around here because there's amazing evidences and proofs for our faith, right? There's great answers to the questions of skeptics regarding all these things, regarding the historicity of the Bible and faith and the reliability of the Gospels. In fact, next week, we're going to get into a few of those common objections that people bring. But let me just say, for, for some of us, when you hear that, does it feel a little overwhelming? It's like, wow, it does. It feels a little overwhelming. And some of you, that's just your, your mind. You love studying that stuff. Man, you have every answer ready on the tip of your tongue. Others of you are like, oh, I don't know. Every time I get asked a question, you know, my palms start sweating and my mouth gets dry and I can't think of any of them, right? I'm like, oh, there's an answer. It just feels intimidating. And for so many people, because it feels intimidating and feels feels awkward, they never share Jesus. They never share their faith with anyone. Well, I think there's a deeper thing that Peter is getting at here. I don't think the most important part of what Peter is saying is be prepared, you know, to, to answer all those other questions. I think it's this. Personally, do you notice he says this? Be prepared to give the reason for the hope that what? You have. You, personally, be prepared to give an answer, to give a reason, an explanation for the hope that you have. You have a hope. You have an eternal hope. You have a hope in the midst of hard circumstances in life. You have a hope in the midst of tragedy. You have a hope in the midst of things you don't understand. You have a hope that you have relationship with God, both now Life in abundance now, life in relationship with God, and eternal life that you'll spend eternity with him. You have a hope. And he says, I want you to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you personally have. It's basically the heart of this is you need to be ready to give an explanation for why, why, why am I a follower of Jesus? Why am I a follower of Jesus? I don't know if you've spent a lot of time actually stopping and thinking about that or thinking about, like, what is my explanation for why am I a follower of Jesus? But I want to help you out by giving you um, a little bit of what Peter, earlier in his letter, right when he starts out his letter, 
he actually talks about this hope and he gives us where he anchors his hope. He gives us the foundation, the basis of where he anchors his hope. And I just want to read that for you here in, in 1 Peter. It says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. In other words, as a follower of Jesus, you have a hope. It's a living hope, not a dead hope. You have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until what? The coming. Until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Listen, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so Peter, right at the beginning of this letter, he begins talking about this concept of the hope that you and I have. He's not just writing to these guys. He's writing to you and to I. You are the ones that, though you have not seen him, you believe in him, right? That's you. That's me. Though we have not seen him, we believe in him. And he says that should create in us an inexpressible and glorious joy. Because we know we have a hope, a glorious hope, he calls it. And what does Peter anchor our hope in? The reason we've decided to follow Jesus in? Two things. What did you notice in there? Jesus' resurrection and the fact that he's coming again. That Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again, and he's coming again. And the part that Peter constantly leveraged, in fact, all of the early eyewitnesses of Jesus leveraged was the resurrection of Jesus. And the fact that he rose from the dead gave them the confidence that when he says, I'm coming to take you to be with me, he's going to do it. See, Peter, as he thinks through his own story, I think his story, his personal testimony would be like, is he sharing it? He's like, hey, looking back, I followed Jesus. It was so exciting. He said, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. We followed him. We said, this is the Messiah. He did all these amazing miracles. Three years we followed Jesus. Our minds were blown. And then we watched as he was betrayed. In fact, a few hours before he was betrayed, we're all sitting around this meal. He said, you're all going to betray me. You're all going to run away afraid. And I said, not me, Jesus. Maybe all these other losers, but not me. And then a couple hours later, this middle school girl pointed at me around this campfire and said, hey, I know you, you Galilean guy with the funny accent. I know, you, you're one of them, aren't you? And Peter said, nah. Two more times. I betrayed Jesus. 
And then the rooster crowed. Betrayed him. Denied him. They went on that night to crucify him. The next day they beat him. They crucified him. He died. We saw him die. And then I peered into an empty tomb. And then I had breakfast with my Savior. And he gave me a second chance. He said, I know you betrayed me. But I'm recommissioning you, Peter, to go out and shepherd this new movement of followers of Jesus. He gave me a chance. I saw him. He died, and I saw my risen Savior. I'm with him. It's all worth it. I'm with him. Peter continually, and all the early eyewitnesses to the resurrection, this was the main event. They tied it all back. This was the reason they went out. No resurrection. Um, we wouldn't be here today celebrating the person of Jesus. Peter's question, yeah, you want to ask why I followed Jesus, Peter would say? Want to know the reason for my hope? Well, <laughs> he died, and then I had breakfast with him on the beach. And so I want you, he, he, I want you, Peter would say, to be ready to share the hope you have. And that hope is rooted in the fact that he is really alive. And because of that, you can trust everything that he says when it comes to the future and the hope that you have. And then Peter goes on to tell us the tone we're to use, the way we're to share this. So he says, I want you to be ready and have an answer. And guess what? Best bet is probably to tie it back to the thing that all the early people in the early church did, the fact that he really did rise again. Verse 15, Peter says, but do this with gentleness or with humility and courteousness. Do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Remember Pliny the Younger? Um, emperor, actually... They don't eat babies. They're actually model citizens. I've, I think I'd like to hire some of these people to work in my company. They're so honest. I, you know, I, I mean, I don't know about all the crazy stuff they believe, but my daughter married one. Actually, those guys treat their wives amazing. They keep their word. See, this is the point, is that when you live a life the way that Jesus says to live, you're going to be a light in the culture. People may think you believe crazy stuff, but they should look at your life and go, man, those people are the best, best people. That people, as they look at the culture and there's this sort of narrative going around, you know, all Christians are, are bigoted and intolerant or whatever, um, those that actually have you in their lives would go, no, I know them. They're some of the most loving people I've ever met in my life. They genuinely care for people. Peter says, I want you to share Jesus in a way that makes Jesus look good. Peter concludes his thought like this in verse 17. He says, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. How many of you in here um, have ever suffered at some point in your life? Yeah. It's kind of inevitable in life. You, you there's some suffering, right? Peter says, hey, 
Suffering will come. It's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Jesus will say, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? That we all end up giving our lives for something. There's a way to live our life, and there is a way to give our life that has eternal significance and eternal value. He says, for Christ, verse 18, also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And when you're suffering, he says, and when you suffer for doing good, for following Jesus, for not being willing to, to turn away from that, you're like your Savior. Jesus suffered for your benefit that you might have life. Now, going back to verse 15 for a minute. Be ready to, to give a defense, to give an explanation for the hope that you have. Here's the question you need to be prepared to answer in your own heart and in your own words and in your own way is this. Why do I have hope? Why am I a follower of Jesus? I don't know if you've ever really stopped to think that through. Why do I have hope? Why am I a follower of Jesus? Do you have a way that you could succinctly share that with people? Do you have a quick way you can... You can share that, right? A quick way. Because honestly, when you're having conversations with people in your circle, you usually don't have like 30 minutes to stop and lay out the whole like explanation for things, right? You've got like an elevator pitch. You've got like 30 seconds. Somebody interjects, hey, aren't you like a Bible person? Or you go to church, right? What do you think about that? A lot of times you get about 30 seconds, don't you, of somebody's attention. And really... The question you need to focus on on that is not, you know, all the auxiliary questions, but really the question you need to focus on is why Jesus? Why Jesus? Why, why do you follow Jesus? And the faster you can take the conversation to why you believe in Jesus, why Jesus is part of the equation. You know, the reason you take, you know, the miracles Jesus did seriously, the reason you're committed to, to, to your church, the reason you're not put out by suffering, put off by suffering, are directly tied to why you've chosen to follow Jesus. The reason why you take the Bible seriously, why you, why you live your life the way you do, it's, it's directly tied ultimately to the reason why you chose to follow Jesus. And so if you only get a minute, which most of the time you only do, the best thing you can do is tie your faith back to Jesus as quickly as possible. And so to help you do that, I've got a couple, I've got three little statements for you today. And you're going to need to write these down, or if you want, you can wait till the third one, and I'll have all three of them pop up on the screen there, and you can take a picture of the screen with your phone. And what I'd like you to do is take these and think about them this week and take them to heart and maybe formulate them in your own words, but that you would have something committed in your heart and in your memory and your mind that simply brings people back to Jesus when you have the opportunity to do so. And so here's Here's the first of those three little statements. It's this. I believe Jesus is Lord and that he died for my sins and rose again. Would you help me by saying, reading that out loud? Here we go. I believe Jesus is Lord and that he died for my sins and rose again. This is personal. This is, for me, the reason why I have hope, the reason why I choose Jesus is because what? He is Lord and he died for my sins and he rose again. Why wouldn't I follow him? See, the most helpful response is often to anchor your hope to the very event that Peter did, the resurrection. 
to the very event that the early church did, to the early eyewitnesses did. Because you know what? If, if a man can predict his own death and resurrection and pull it off, you should follow him. The reason you are a follower of Jesus is the resurrection. I mean, you could say, yeah, no, the reason I am a follower of Jesus is because my life was at rock bottom, and, man, somebody introduced me to Jesus, and Jesus just met me in my need and transformed my life. That is true, but the reason Jesus could transform your life is because he's alive. The reason you're a follower of Jesus is because of the resurrection. In fact, Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians. He said, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And so one of the best things you can do immediately is just to share this simple hope that you have. I believe Jesus is Lord and that he died for my sins and rose again. Now, there's seven seconds right there. If you get another seven seconds, here's your next little statement. Here's what it is. I believe it because eyewitnesses gave their lives to share that message. Really, why do you believe that? I believe it because eyewitnesses gave their lives to share that message. You know what? The resurrection, um, I don't have time to get into it today. But if, you're, if you have questions or maybe a skeptic or you're wondering about the resurrection, let me just say the resurrection is one of the most historically unassailable events in history. There is more evidence for the resurrection than you can imagine. And so if you're interested, go to our website, lifegj.org. Send us an email uh, that just says resurrection video, and we'll send you some links to some great videos to kind of um, give you some evidence on that and insight because you really have to wrestle with with the fact of Jesus' resurrection. But eyewitnesses gave their lives to share the message of Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, all those people that suffered, like we began reading about, you know, Jesus' original followers, they would all go on to die martyrs' deaths, except for the apostle John, who was boiled in oil. Doesn't sound much better to me. They would all go on to die martyrs' deaths. Guys, Nobody makes up a lie they know is not true and then goes on to, to give their life for it. Why would you do that? It's not like there was any money or any power associated with it. No, in fact, there was what? Persecution. I believe it because eyewitnesses gave their lives to share that message. Apostle Paul tells us, at one point, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at once. You know the reason we trust the resurrection? is because a whole bunch of eyewitnesses saw it and very shortly after the resurrection recorded it and wrote it down. Eyewitnesses. And they gave their lives to share that message. Okay, now if you get another 10 seconds, here's your next little statement. And this is you personally. Because Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection and pulled it off, I believe him when he said that if I trust him, I'll spend eternity with him. So I trust him. And I follow him. Now, I think that makes sense, don't you? You don't seem so sure. Let's see if you can say it out loud one time with me. Because Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection and pulled it off, I believe him when he said that if I trust him, I'll spend eternity with him. So I trust him and follow him. There you go. 30 seconds. Actually, it's like 20. Let's do it one time, okay? All three statements. Here we go. Why, why have you chosen to follow Jesus? Why, why Jesus? I believe Jesus is Lord and that he died for my sins and rose again. I believe it because eyewitnesses gave their lives to share that message. 
Because Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection and pulled it off, I believe him when he said that if I trust him, I'll spend eternity with him. So I trust him and follow him. That's not so hard, is it? You can take that. You can commit that to memory. You can lodge that in your heart and your mind. And let me just tell you, as you follow Jesus and as you have conversations and, and God brings you opportunities, you'll know in the right time just to share some of that is. And, and the Holy Spirit, as you, as you live your life in tune with what the Holy Spirit's doing, being led by the Holy Spirit, he'll give you the right words to say in the moment. But having that anchor point of this is why I follow Jesus was so valuable for you. Now, that is one of the most useful things. I'm going to give you one more useful tool, okay? Here's this tool. You know, for me, Jesus. So if you have more than 20 seconds, this is where you get to share your story. You know, for me, Jesus, fill in the blank. Jesus gave me peace. I was going through this horrible time. Jesus transformed my life. Jesus rescued me from so many things. I got this email just Friday from a guy named Steve in the church. Really cool story. Back in the 70s and 80s, he was into using and selling drugs. He was, had just had a new baby. He was about ready to lose his wife and baby, about ready to leave him because of just his addiction and his lifestyle. And during this time, he didn't know it, but his cousins had been praying for him. See, prayer is powerful. They'd been praying for him, praying for him. And one day, they invited him to come see this, like, speaker evangelist that was in town and doing like five nights that week. And they're like, come on, you should come. And he blew them off. But something drew him. See, this is the come and see part. This is the invite part. Just invite. Hey, hey, you should come. You never know when God's going to use that. God drew him. And he came in. He hid from his cousins in the back. He didn't want them to see him. Hung out for two nights, hiding from his cousins. And that second night, the evangelist got up and gave a compelling story. And he was like, the words being spoken were spoken directly to him. And he went forward with tears in his eyes. His cousin was like, hey, there's Steve. We've been praying for him. He goes forward and gives his life to Jesus. And God completely transformed his life, freed him. Years and years later, still following Jesus. Amazing testimony. And you're like, well, that's cool, but I, I don't have a testimony like that. I'm kind of boring. I grew up in church. Never really got into trouble. You know what? That's an amazing testimony. You have what's called a legacy. You know what? I, I don't have a crazy story. I mean, God's done some cool, crazy things in my life that I get to tell those stories. But, man, I grew up in a church, in a family. They brought me to church. They taught me to love Jesus and memorize the Bible. But you know what? It didn't start that way. Well, it started that way for me, but not for my parents. My dad never grew up in church. He was out in the desert every week picking up rocks. But then in college, these guys came to his door to share Jesus with him, and he blew him off. But later that night, he gave his life to Jesus. He still has never been able to go back and find those guys. If you know my dad, he's launched a ministry full-time, has impacted lives all over this world. And, and I am so thankful for the legacy of faith that I have in my life that my dad trusted Jesus enough, enough to give his life to Jesus and live his life for Jesus. I've been saved from so many things. There are so many things I didn't have to deal with. I didn't have to struggle through. 
a legacy. Parents, if you're, if you're here, man, one of the biggest legacies you can have is living faith in front of your children. You have a testimony. You have a testimony. God has moved in your life. That time that he just gave you peace through that circumstance that you don't know how you made it through, his grace was there with you. You share your story. You know, for me, Jesus, fill in the blank. And what do you do with all the questions that you don't know the answers to? What do you do with that? Because when you get those, a lot of times you're like, oh, I heard an answer, and I can't remember it. But I know there's an answer. Oh, I heard that one time in church, but I can't remember it. Anybody else or just me? We're going to talk about that next week, okay? But I just, in case you get into these conversations this week, I want to give you the answer right now. You know, I'm not sure. Let me get back to you on that one. But for me... Okay, you ready? Can you going to help me say this one time? You know, I'm not sure. Let me get back to you on that one. But for me, bring it back to Jesus. Here we go. I believe Jesus is Lord and that he died for my sins and rose again. I believe it because eyewitnesses gave their lives to share that message. Because Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection and pulled it off, I believe him when he said that if I trust him, I'll spend eternity with him. So I trust him and follow him. Would you stand? We're going to close just by singing a few lines of this song, Living Hope, again. You know, as we close, if you're here in the, in the room or maybe joining us online and you want to know that living hope, that you've never crossed that line of faith, I want to give you the opportunity to do that. So if that's you and you feel God is drawing you today, I want to give you the opportunity to respond. You can do that by praying a prayer like this after me. Lord Jesus, I know that I've sinned. I can't make it to God on my own. I ask for your forgiveness. I want to live my life with you as my Lord. I believe in you that you died and rose again. Welcome me into your family. I want to live my life for you. And if you prayed that and trusted him in your heart, you have that living hope. And for all the rest of you, I pray that this week you would live this out that you would really wrestle with and grasp the fact that you have a living hope. You have a message to share. What if we all got over the awkward and just brought Jesus into conversations in our circle that, that we became intentional about sharing and inviting, that we intentionally looked for opportunities and prayed for opportunities to share Jesus? I think it would transform our community.